Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People. I'm Rabbi Jeff Dreyfus, and it is such a pleasure for me to have with us today uh, Rabbi Harry Danziger, my first rabbi. Um, I have such fond memories of him when I was here at Temple Israel Preschool uh, with his wife, Jeannie, who is actually one of my early, uh, earliest educators. Um, throughout my life, he has been such a, a guiding presence for me, inspiring me to want to bring Judaism into my life. Um, and modeling for me what it means to be a caring rabbi, uh, an inspirational figure. Um, and I'm so glad to be able to share his story and his, his uh, tremendous impact on this congregation with all of you today. So Rabbi D, welcome. Thank you, thank you. And it is such a pleasure for me to be interviewed by Rabbi Dreyfus, whom I knew and remember as a little boy in our preschool, as you said. So uh, it's the epitome of shepping nachas, of uh, pride in what somebody has grown to be and is growing to be in this congregation every day. Well, thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to start, actually, uh, I don't know if we'll go quite to your preschool age, but I want to start with your childhood and um, what that was like. You grew up in Huntington, West Virginia, and your dad was a rabbi. Um, but I don't know what Huntington was like in those days. I can't imagine it was a booming Jewish metropolis. Um, and so I'm curious, what uh, in your childhood um, inspired you to want to be a rabbi? Um, Huntington was not a metropolis. Uh, it's half the size today as it was when I left in 1956. Uh, but we had two congregations. Uh, my home shul, of which my father was a rabbi, he was a conservadox rabbi, I call it, trained in an orthodox yeshiva. Uh, he himself was very liberal uh, and said to me when we had one of our discussions about uh, my becoming reform, who do you think modernized this place? And he was right. Um, but Huntington had two congregations. What inspired me? <laughs> People used to say to me, so you're going to be a rabbi like your daddy. And I said, absolutely not. Uh, I knew why I said absolutely not, it, but I didn't tell them that. It, uh, my, my formula was you have to please too many people too much of the time. Now, my father had 130 families, 140 families. It was not very big. Uh, he was much beloved. And I don't know where I got that thing about pleasing people, but I entered college to become a chemical engineer. Hmm. Um, a large part of what motivated me in that sense to be a rabbi 
two things. One, I realized I wanted to help and deal with people as people, and chemical engineers by and large don't. Uh, and secondly, I went to the University of Cincinnati, so I met people my age who were becoming rabbis at the Hebrew Union College. I had never met somebody my age who was going to be a rabbi. And so the two came together at the end of my freshman year as a chemical engineer. And it saved me from ever learning really how to do engineer drawing before the days of computer assistance. Wow. Well, what a uh, gift to the Jewish people that you didn't end up becoming chem chemical engineer, although I'm sure you would have invented something. Uh, my professor of, of engineer drawing, who was a Russian Jewish immigrant, uh, I think felt that the great gift of my becoming a rabbi was a gift to science <laughs> and not becoming a chemical engineer. That's funny. So let's talk a little bit about Cincinnati and what, what was that like once you were a rabbinical student? Um, I, I can imagine it was very different. I went to LA and New York and not Cincinnati, uh, but Cincinnati, especially in those days, was just the, um, the, the center of, of reformed Jewish life and scholarship. And you, I'm assuming you lived on campus in the dorm. Um, so what was that like? We were, I mean, looking back at it, we were such a warm community. You're right. If you weren't married, you lived in a dorm. Today, that would be unthinkable to build a dormitory for people who were 24, 25, 26. But in those days, that was part of the deal. We ate three meals a, uh, a day together. Uh, we were served very handsomely in those days. Um, and we were very much a community and it's reflected now. My class of, class of 1964, which uh, for many years we had only lost two of our 24 or 32. Uh, my class has uh, periodic get-togethers on Zoom. And at conventions, we have uh, a dinner together. Uh, we keep in touch. Uh, that's, that was a great part of it. The other part of uh, being a rabbinic student in Cincinnati in those days two other parts. One was you were a participant in the congregations in Cincinnati. They relied on rabbinic students. Um, I was the assistant director of a high school, and I was a youth director. Um, and the other thing about uh, Cincinnati was you spread out to these small congregations in the Midwest and the South, the Jonesboro's, the Pine Bluffs, the uh, Blythevilles, the Cleveland, Mississippi, where I've served uh, for a number of years since my retirement. Cincinnati was a warm community, and our professors were, frankly, of the old school. So the transition in Reform Judaism hadn't really taken place from a classical reform to a more traditional approach. Mm. So we'll touch on this a little bit later, too. But for our listeners who have grown up, uh, probably many of them listening to this podcast today, actually didn't grow up with classical reform, but they grew up with the kind of reform Judaism that you helped to bring to Temple. So can you talk a little bit about what classical reform was? And then um, I I'm assuming that your, a lot of your professors were from, um, from Europe that moved to America, or at least some of them. Um, and so they were coming out of a different kind of cultural milieu and religious uh, upbringing who, because uh, a lot of their, reformers of that age maybe studied in Orthodox yeshiva at some point in their life and then decided they wanted to be reform. Um, so what, what was the kind of driving ethos behind classical reform Judaism? 
I think I once characterized it, one of my sermons of which I'm proud, um, was a sermon that some people would remember as a sermon about the trunk. And the essence of, of classical reform, uh, though it had an intellectual uh, underpinning, was what fits the modern world, and by the modern world meant the Western Christian world, what in Judaism fits. What fit was we believe in God, we believe in ethics, social justice was the, as, as Rabbi Greenstein often says, the crown jewel. Mm. Uh, but there was a careful choosing and picking those things which our Christian neighbors would understand to be religion. What does that mean? That means we're not gonna wear distinctive dress day to day in the streets. We don't have to have distinctive dietary uh, traditions. Um, we, in, in, where we live, people do ride on Shabbos. They work on Shabbos, etc. So classical reform attempted to find what they would have considered the kernel of Judaism, the belief structure and the ethics, uh, while sort of packing away those things which separated us from the larger community. It all grew out of the emancipation in Europe, which came out of the, the French Revolution and beyond, of Jews being welcomed into society, going to colleges, uh, being given the vote. Now, the average classical reform Jew didn't know any of this. You understand that what I'm doing now is teaching a course <laughs> for a college. The, the essence was, we're reform, we don't wear a yarmulke. We're reform, we don't wear a talus. We're reform, we don't keep kosher. But underpinning it was we do that which our neighbors do, but Reform Judaism is heavily involved with the belief in God, worship, festivals, life cycle ceremonies, and above all, social justice. And it was, by the way, highly deserving of respect and honor because it kept Judaism alive for people who came to a completely new and chaotic uh, milieu when they came to America. There was no organized Judaism in America until there was Reform Judaism. Mm, that's a great point. Right, when, when um, Isaac Mayer Wise started the Union of American Hebrew Congregations and Hebrew Union College, he's the founder of Reform Judaism in America. Um, he didn't think that he was starting the Reform movement. He thought he was starting Judaism in America. Right. And that was his goal. And, and you can see it in the names the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, the Hebrew Union College, the Central Conference of American Rabbis. Yes, he absolutely, he believed there was a new America, a new world, there needed to be a new Judaism. And he was right. He just couldn't do it in 1873 uh, uh, and get everybody aboard. So I, that's a really um, important point that you made a moment ago that, um, in a way, this idea of classical reform maybe saved American Judaism because the Jews who fled Eastern Europe or, um, or Western Europe, you know, some people from Germany, but um, largely from Poland and Russia too, um, they were fleeing persecution. Even the ones in Germany, maybe they weren't fleeing persecution, uh, but they depending on the time period, weren't fully accepted as equal citizens. So um, it, those people that were fleeing or, or that immigrated to America, they were, 
concern that they couldn't be Jewish in the way that they were in the past and fit in in America and make a living and, and be accepted. And so if the Judaism that was existed then in America had f- required them to be an other, then maybe they would have rejected it altogether. Um, I, I have a formula that I, that I use for this, which is people came to this country. Reform was largely founded by German, Austrian Jews who had been emancipated, who had been part of the culture, uh, the larger culture. But uh, my formula is people came over, they said, I know I'm Jewish, how shall I be American and modern? And out of that came the stripping away of some of the Jewish, but then the concentration on God worship. Uh, Later on, especially in the late 60s, early 70s is the turning point. Later on, the question was, I know I'm American, I know I'm modern, how shall I be Jewish? Mm. And that's what led to, as we, I know you know, uh, led to, in, in my time, I was ordained in 1964, we were in the midst, or we were on the eve of the switching of the question. I know I'm American and modern, how shall I now be authentically, meaningfully Jewish? And so when you were a student, all of your teachers were from, let's just use the term, the old guard in a way. They grew up in the classical reform system. Mm-hmm. But as a student, did you have a sense, even though that's the way in which they were training you, did you have a sense that that the community, the people you would serve, had a yearning for something different, for something more, or did that come later? That came a little later. My, my theory is, it's not just mine, but... Uh, for the purposes of this, it's mine. Uh, my theory is that the Six-Day War was the great antidote to the fear that American Jews had after the Holocaust, because the unspoken question was, could it happen here? With the Six-Day War, Jews became strong. That was one. The other was the Civil Rights Revolution, because after, the, as the Civil Rights Revolution progressed, Uh, there was no average American. There was no typical American. You can't have a typical American when you now recognize that we are white and brown and black. Out of that 67, 70 civil rights, six-day war, American Jews said, we have a distinct identity, just as others have distinct identities, and we're no longer afraid. And so we will show our Judaism differently. People who would never have worn a Magandavit or a mezuzah wore a Magandavit and a mezuzah around their neck. People who would never have worn... There were Orthodox Jews at Harvard and Yale in 1965, but there were none who wore kippot. Hmm. Even Orthodox? Even Orthodox. Forty years later, professors, students, presidents wore kippot if they were so inclined. Hmm. That's what happened. And so when you asked me uh, when I was a student, we didn't know we were on the verge of this transformation. We knew some of it, but we didn't recognize the fullness uh, and how it would come about. So we'll get back to this topic in a moment, and especially how you uh, took what was happening nationally, this transition from classical reform to um, embracing our tradition, or in your in your words, uh, pulling out that old trunk in the attic mm-hmm. and seeing what was inside. Uh, but um, I want to talk a little bit first about 
Oh, so how, how you um, took what was happening nationally and brought it to Temple Israel in Memphis. But first, let's talk about how you got here. So uh, I read in, in Judy Ringel's book, um, Children of Israel, about our congregation. Um, and she, if, if you haven't listened to uh, the first episode of Torah to the People, um, that was with Judy Ringel, uh, Temple's historian, about uh, the story of Temple. So go check that out in the podcast feed if you haven't listened. Um, but she talked about how actually you wanted to be a Navy chaplain uh, before being a congregational rabbi, but they, the Navy didn't need you, is that right? Uh, wanted to be is too strong a term. In those days, every seminarian, every student for the, uh, the ministry got an automatic deferment from the service. So our conference of rabbis then said we got the deferment, but now when you're ordained in order to join the conference, you must, uh, you must volunteer to be a chaplain in one of the branches. I took Navy for whatever reason. I think I thought I'd look good in a uniform <laughs> and you're more likely to be stationed in places like Great Lakes and San Diego rather than uh, Fort Hood, Texas. Mm. Um, good choice. Uh, there, yes, it, I mean, the, the altruism of this is not very apparent because <laughs> it isn't there. Uh, and the Navy actually took two out of 11 of us in my class who signed up for Navy. They took almost everybody who signed up for Army and Air mm. Force. So I suddenly found out that I wasn't going to be in the Navy because I had been told that I was in. And that's when I became available as a graduating senior rabbinic student. Wow, okay, okay, so. How do I get here? So, yeah, so Rabbi Wax was a senior rabbi at the right. time, right? Rabbi Wax was highly respected. He had spoken at HUC in, uh, at some point, maybe he did that later. Uh, he interviewed a number of people from my class when he visited Cincinnati, but at the time I wasn't eligible because I was going to the Navy. Um, my theory is, and he and I never talked about this, I'm a believer that uh, he must have offered the position to one or another, uh, knowing what it's like to be a senior rabbi who might not have an assistant. Mm. Uh, uh, and I believe that most people were not going to come south in the summer of 1964. Mm. 64 was the Mississippi summer, uh, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman. Uh, it was, uh, one of our colleagues was beaten with a lead pipe in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Arthur Lelleveld of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, well, I came from West Virginia. My mother was from Kentucky. My father was from Texas. So I didn't have the same picture of the South that others may have. Uh, and so after Rabbi Wax interviewed in Cincinnati in what I think didn't work out with uh, somebody coming, I became available. I think his friend, the provost, said, as I say it, Jimmy, I've got somebody for you, nothing special, but you need an assistant, and that's how we got here. Hmm. Well, it's very humble. Uh, but who was the provost at that time? Samuel Sandmel, one of the great, great biblical scholars, the, the first Jew ever to be the president of the American Bible Society, among others. Wow. Wow. So the, the fact, I mean, I, I want to talk about Memphis, but the faculty, let's just for one moment talk about the faculty at HUC at the time. I mean, they're tremendous scholars. Um, Jacob Rader Marcus, of course, was, he was there at the time, right? Oh, absolutely. And so he, uh, Jacob we, 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 we thought he had been there at the time of Isaac Mayer Wise. But, uh, <laughs> Dr. Marcus was ordained, I believe, in 1923. Wow. And, and he's known as the 
historian of American Judaism? Is he, that he really invented American Jewish history. Uh, it, uh, Jacob Marcus uh, was really, I think you could say, he was the father of the whole discipline of American Jewish history. Hmm. And the, the American Jewish Archives is now named for him. He was, he was a uh, wonderful, warm, wise uh, man who had no family. His, only his wife died young. His only daughter died young in a fire. Mm. And as he said once in speaking to our conference of rabbis, he said, I have no family. You are my nephews and nieces. And there were very few dry eyes at that moment. Mm. But he was always there for you. Wow. And who else was on the faculty at the time? Uh, Sylvan Schwartzman, who was professor of education and was the one member of the faculty who had significant uh, congregational experience. He was my mentor, and he was the guru of practical rabbinics. He was the one who could tell you what not to do at a wedding ceremony, like forget the name of the bride or the groom. <laughs> really practical, what in Yiddish would be called tochesafentish, that is uh, substantive. Um, um, Dr. Eugene Mahali was uh, yeshiva trained in Hungary, um, taught midrash, uh, and we had a wonderful Methodist minister who lived long enough that, that when our, my daughter-in-law was ordained, I got to see him before he died, uh, who was our professor of speech. Uh, and some people didn't take that seriously. I took it very seriously and gained enormously from him. So you actually won the, the prize uh, in your year for homiletics, which is a fancy word for giving a sermon or speeches. Um, and that really paid off when you came to Memphis because right when you got here, the very first, uh, I think you said seven or eight weeks that you were here, um, Rabbi Wax got leg surgery and was out of commission. And, um, and so you, as green as you can be as a new <laughs> rabbi, um, are here alone at serving this congregation essentially by yourself. Um, and what was that like? Um, you did services. Uh, I just think back to my first sermon here on the pulpit. I was nervous enough for that, um, but weddings, funerals, um, what was that like for you in just your first few weeks? Looking back, I, I, uh, I write with you in being awed by it, uh, <laughs> but it was, it was the, the Jewish equivalent of the baptism under fire. Um, you know, I think what really happened, I had did a probably 10 weddings that summer, and I was acutely aware of the fact that these people had uh, scheduled a wedding with their longtime rabbi, and now they were getting this stranger, this kid rabbi. Um, funerals, um, I think overall, and I gave two sermons a week. In those days, it was a sermon Friday night and a full-scale sermon Saturday morning. I think something inside me said, however you do it, it's got to be right. Uh, I probably made some changes that Rabbi Wax would not have approved of just because I didn't realize, you know, I, we, I read a, a paragraph in Hebrew that we never read in Hebrew or something like that. Um, and I got a lot of positive reinforcement. Now, one of the ways I've characterized this congregation, and I guess it even comes from those days, it was, it was a good eight weeks that Rabbi Wax was out until the High Holy Days. Um, I've characterized Temple Israel as a place where, when I spoke to people I was interviewing, it's a place where they appreciate what you do right, and they're quick to forgive what you do wrong. 
and that gives an enormous, I, I sense that, and it must have given me an enormous confidence that I didn't get from knowing I could do it, uh, if that makes any sense. But I was a veteran rabbi by Rosh Hashanah. Uh, as, as I characterize it, they say in basketball, in March Madness, there are no freshman players. Yeah, and just in your, you started probably July 1st. Mm -hmm. And uh, first service was, I think, July 3rd, uh, the night before Independence Day. Rabbi Wax went to the hospital, I believe, for scheduled surgery on July 7th. Um, and, and he was very gracious about, you know, if I asked him advice, uh, he certainly was. And I think he expressed appreciation for what I was doing. But uh, his attitude, which he expressed on my first service, he said, uh, rabbi Danziger has been ordained by the Hebrew Union College. He is a full-scale rabbi. He can do what rabbis do. And I thought to myself, well, that's what you think. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, uh, it's a, it's, there's a big difference between having the training and um, getting smicha, getting ordination, but then actually going out and doing it, whether it's um, actually being good at it, which usually takes quite some time or if it's confidence even if even if you're good at it or, or you have the potential to be good at it if you're so nervous um it's hard to it's hard to be present in leading services for people if you're too nervous um or a wedding or a funeral and so um it's it's very impressive of course but also i i'm I want to lift up that that might be what prepared you so quickly um, for the success that you had later on. Uh, no question. Uh, no question. I think you're absolutely right. And there were moments. I can give one quick example of a moment. I'm visiting in a hospital, and I walk into a room of an elderly lady. Uh, elderly at that point was probably 20 years younger than I am, but uh, an elderly woman. And she tells me that she had brain surgery. And her doctor was, and this is not a shameless plug because he is unfortunately uh, no longer with us, Dr. Ed Kaplan, who was a great neurosurgeon. In those days, Ed Kaplan was a few years older than I. Uh, we looked a little alike. I, I had met him, and I thought to myself, you know, if he can operate on her brain, I can be her rabbi. Hmm. And it was, a, it was a transformative moment, just the realization that I wasn't a kid dressed in my father's suit. Wow. And that happened in those early... In those I early think it weeks. was the summer when Rabbi Wax was wow. reco recuperating. I, I learned a lot in, in that period. That was, uh, I got a lot of credits for that semester. So let's talk a little bit more about what happened in those early years, um, because you didn't... You, Many people might not know this that knew that you were a longtime rabbi here. 20, how many years were you senior rabbi? Uh, I was senior rabbi for 22 years. So, and, and I have been there nine years between my five and my four, nine years otherwise. So, uh, 31. Wow. Actually, 32 years out of my 36 as an active rabbi. Wow. But so many people don't know that you left and you served a congregation in Monroe, Louisiana, and then Baltimore before coming back here. A senior rabbi, but in those first five years, while you were here right out of rabbinical school, um, Rabbi Wax, of course, even at that time, I'm sure was a, a towering figure. Um, and I, I'm curious about what you learned from him in those early years. 
but also um, you met someone very special in those first few years here. You, you surely are talking about your former teacher, my wife, Jeannie. Yes, uh, Temple Israel will always have a, a many places in my heart, but one of them is because at Poplar and Montgomery in the first summer that I was here, um, I heard somebody typing in an office that was otherwise empty. And I went into that office and there was this uh, beautiful, blonde uh, young woman uh, typing, and she wasn't a very good typist, so I, it was out as far as being my, my secretary. Um, and we talked, she was typing something for her college, uh, governing something. Um, and I asked her out later, she refused. Uh, but eventually we had a date, we had a couple of dates. She went back to school because she was only going into her sophomore year of college at Wash U. Uh, but by the end of her semester break in the winter, we were engaged. Um, so I've never said to couples, you need to take a long time to get to know each other, because Jeannie and I have been working at getting to know each other for now close to 57 years, uh, and so far it's working. Wow. Wow. So, And she was from Memphis. She, she had moved to Memphis when she was in high school from Toledo, Ohio. And Jeannie was always... Um, she, she had always been involved in her temple. She was always involved in Judaism. Um, her, uh, her father was, Rabbi Wax used to say, probably the most knowledgeable Jew in the congregation. Spoke a beautiful Hebrew, long-time uh, European Zionist. Um, and so falling into being, uh, there, there's no model for being a rabbi's wife, and certainly changes generationally. But uh, Jeannie, contributed enormously. That's why her that's why her picture is in the portrait at the chapel and not just me. Right. Uh, I think it's the Harry and Jeannie Danziger chapel. Exactly. And I think because she was a major contributor she made a major contributor to making people feel good about being part of Temple Israel, as well as her teaching and her role in the the preschool, religious school and everything else. Mm. Well can you talk a little bit about how she was able to do that, how she was able to make people feel good um, and welcome? And um, one of the things that you did, which uh, I think was so smart, was to, to uh, and I I'm, don't remember which time period, if this was your first year, your early years, or once you were back, but to show that Temple wasn't just a place where Memphians um, who have known each other for generations um, could come and everybody knows everybody, but in fact, this congregation is so much bigger than that, and there's people from all over the country that have made Memphis and Temple their home. Um, one of the ways that you made people recognize that was at a in the social hall, I think, you had a, a big map of uh, America, and as like an icebreaker, you asked everybody to put a pin in, in the place where they were from, and, and that was just a, a visualization that Temple is so much more than just Memphis. Yeah, and, and as you, you segue from Jeannie to that, and it's very appropriate because Jeannie is a person who will get the life story of a person she barely met, and she will seek it out. She'll ask, she's not even aware sometimes of fact, she'll ask the next question that says to that person, this, per this woman is really interested in you. Hmm. Um, Yes, my map, uh, I used to use it particularly at the, we used to have a new member dinner and new member Shabbat. And at the new member dinner, 
Uh, I would memorize something about every family from their membership application. And when, so I would have them introduce themselves and then I would introduce them about something. But also depends on the map. Yes, because this temple prided itself on the fact that it was community and it was community, but the statement everybody knows everybody or everybody's related, that made other people outsiders. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was very conscious on my part that the self-image of this temple be, it's a big tent with lots of people from lots of places with lots of different views of Judaism. And, and, that, okay. uh, and one of the ways I think that you were so successful is by making, no matter your view of Judaism, or no matter where you're from, but no matter your view of Judaism or of politics, um, you made everybody feel like they had a place here. I tried to. Um, there was, uh, we introduced one ritual at one point, which I knew was the right thing to do. And fortunately, I had no ritual committee, who, nobody who said to me, you can't do this. So I, I made a decision to do it actually on a Friday afternoon. We did it Friday night. Uh, it was marching the Torahs before the reading of the Torah, the Hakafah. Um, and a, a very distinguished leader of the temple uh, said, why are we doing this? You know, this is, uh, this is not reform and so forth. Uh, he said, we're the only reform in town. And I wrote back and I said, yes, you're exactly right. We're the only reform in the town, so we have to be the big tent. And as it happens, you may not like it, and that's a matter of taste. There's no principle involved. But I look and see how people respond to it, and I know it's the right thing. And that was one of the secrets in the transforming from classical reform. There were people who were in, uh, just deeply committed to classical reform, particularly in terms of what we don't do. Um, and one of the principles I had was, this is not a matter of principle, this is a matter of taste. I respect the fact that you don't like it because your taste says it's not, it's not something you like, but it's not a question of, it's not an ethical, it's not a theological, it's not a principle issue. It's just a matter of taste. It doesn't make you a good person or a bad person exactly. or a good Jew or a bad Jew. Exactly. I had a, uh, another principle which went along with that was, uh, I would tell any new rabbi, new cantor, we never indicate that what they were doing before was wrong. Why would you do that? Why would you make people who were committed to a particular form of Judaism now say to them, you know what you were doing? Well, it wasn't right. No, it's just we're doing it differently now. So let, let's go back a little bit to um, the end of those early years here, and we'll come back to Jeannie and, and her role in the preschool and, and uh, many other things that she did later. But um, in, in those, af after year five, or sometime in year five, when you decided to leave Temple and go to Monroe, um, what, was, what was behind that decision? <laughs> Where, did you want to spread your wings at a smaller place? Um, Actually, um, like going into the Navy, it was not entirely, a, why did you want to do this? Uh, Rabbi Wax, for a number of years, had had a, as many rabbis did, a three-year limit for his assistants, hmm. that after three years, an assistant moved on. Uh, in my time, he changed it to five, uh, and it, was very, it was, uh, was very thoughtful of him. He said, after five years, you're eligible for larger congregations. So he changed from three to five, and I served out my five years. 
But at the end of those five years, one was expected to go. Mm. Uh, so Monroe, Louisiana was one of the places. They knew me because of my uh, work with Softy, the regional youth. Uh, and um, there, were not, there were not a lot of openings that were either available, or eligible, or whatever. But we had a wonderful three years in Monroe. It was a congregation of around 200 families when I went there. Today, it doesn't even have a rabbi, unfortunately. It's, it's shrunk, as all these congregations have. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a significant move. We moved with one child, seven months old. Uh, and in Monroe, we had another child, so to, uh, Jeff and David, in those three years. And we lived in three different rental houses mm. in three years. Wow. <coughs> it's, it, it speaks to a time in which um, Jacob's Camp, which we'll get to in a little bit, um, Jacob's was founded in, I think, 70. 1970. 1970, okay. And, um, I mean, it was founded to help Jews from these communities in the Delta um, get to know each other. And I grew up at Jacob's Camp, and I'm from Memphis, and so there we had a significant Jewish community here. But I had friends from Monroe or from Bastrop, Louisiana, or uh, Itabina, Mississippi, or you know places, these small mm -hmm. towns. And um, when I was growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s, there, all these communities were very small. Uh, I mean, a lot of times the people were the only Jewish kids in the if in their grade or their school or maybe even their whole town. So what was it like serving in that, those communities when they were actually much more substantial? Um, like Monroe? Mm -hmm. Oh, in Monroe, uh, well, first of all, you, know, you were the rabbi for the territory. The closest congregation with a rabbi was uh, Vicksburg, 70, 75 miles away, mm. or Alexandria, Rabbi Martin Hinchin, who's well known here, uh, we were uh, neighbors from Alexandria to Monroe, and Shreveport was 100 miles. But um, you, were, you were the Jewish expert in the region. Uh, you served everyone you could find. And you, I, I put my imprint on the congregation, I think in Monroe. Um, we, I was able to do some, uh, some experimental things. I actually played a 12-string guitar. Now, I never played a guitar in front of anybody who really played a guitar. Uh, but for lack of something else, yeah, I occasionally uh, use my guitar for services. Uh, heavily involved with the youth group, even though it was a small youth group, because in those days also, and I, I, I regret this now, that I regret what's changed. Uh, in those days, the concentration on youth was enormous. And I was fortunate, I was a kid rabbi. And I was a youth rabbi. Uh, I may not seem it at my age now. Um, and it was very much valued because people were worried about their kids. This is the age of drugs, sex, rock and roll, Vietnam, uh, all the things, all the, uh, the upheaval in society, and people worried about their kids. Uh, and they wanted them close to the temple, close to the rabbi, close to each other. Um, in Monroe, of course, if anybody spoke for Judaism anywhere, I'd spoke for Judaism. Mm. Uh, if anybody was called on, I was called on. So it's a, a total experience. And uh, coming from a place like Temple Israel, 
I also knew things that could be done better, more elegantly, without great cost or labor. Um, and I always, my legacy in Monroe, in my mind, was we were a better congregation and a better community than we had a right to be on paper. Mm. And that's what I was proud of. Mm. And for them, I was really proud of it for them. Wow. It is really amazing what um, small Jewish communities can do when they come together, when you have people who are dedicated. Um, I, I was a student rabbi in Juneau, Alaska for two years, and also a much smaller community, about um, 45 member families. And when I was there for the high holidays, no normally on a normal Shabbat, I would read from the Torah. But um, on the high holidays, I barely read from the Torah at all because there is a whole generation of kids that this community raised without an educator, without a rabbi or cantor, who, and they taught them how to read and chant from the Torah. Hmm. And um, like you said, I mean, on paper, seeing a congregation with those statistics, um, you wouldn't expect much at all from them um, in, in that regard, at least. Uh, but when, when they have good leadership and inspiration and commitment from people, it's amazing what a community like that can accomplish. Exactly, exactly. I look back, as, as you were saying that, I was thinking when you were talking about the kids, in the summer of 1971, I was invited to be part of the faculty of the National Nifty Institute at Warwick at Kutz Camp. Um, two girls from Monroe went with me. Hmm. They were two 16-year-olds from Monroe, Louisiana, who were going to be at camp with all of these kids from California to Maine to New York to, to Seattle um, and have that kind of experience. But the fact that Monroe sent two kids to a national institution institute and it's maybe we'll talk about this a little more but the sense of being part of a national movement um, and having national um, programs not just regional programs like at Jacobs camp but being able to go to Kutz camp which is a well unfortunately it's well, now yeah. defunct um, but they're actually filming a, um, a movie there I, mm -hmm. I just I don't know if you saw that yeah, about Jewish camping, I think. Or yeah. Takes place at a Jewish camp. Exactly. So, uh, but, but being a part of a national movement is something, actually, I think, unfortunately, Reform Judaism has kind of, I, don't, I wouldn't say lost, but it's, it's certainly decreased in, um, in prominence in, in what the movement provides to synagogues, et cetera. And that's, we could have a whole two <laughs> podcasts about just why that is. But um, I think that's a phenomenon that many kids and myself included i i was more active in bbyo than nifty but being able to to see to meet jews from all over the country as a kid and and learn about jewish communities and see that even though i loved being a part of temple that i'm a part of a people that's so much bigger than just where i grew up was very powerful for yeah. my jewish experience yeah i'm a, and when i was growing up in huntington west virginia uh, I was not in the temple. I wasn't in their, their nifty. Uh, but we did have a, a, a newly reformed AZA chapter, hmm. which was BBYO. The next closest one was in Wheeling, West Virginia, 190 miles away. But I was lucky. Um, 
in order to play basketball and other things at, at tournaments, you had to have somebody in oratory and somebody in debate. Well, I did oratory, but I won oratory at the uh, council level. Then I won it for Western Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Then I won it for the district in New Jersey, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. So I, little Harry Danziger from uh, Huntington, West Virginia, got to go to a national AZA convention uh, at what was in Camp Starlight hmm. and meet these people from all over uh, the country, much as you did in, in your BBYO. Um, a sidelight to that was that I came in second in AZA, national AZA oratory. Wow. The person who beat me became a dear friend, classmate at HUC from San Francisco, recently deceased, unfortunately. But uh, I always said that my classmate and friend, Marty Wiener, uh, was in fact a better speaker than I that night. <laughs> that night, that's funny. Wow. It, it's. It's um, just speaks to how important Jewish youth is, and and um, you know it's been really hard during COVID mm. to um, for our high school program and um, to come together and and the year on Zoom really hurt us, um, and so we're really here at Temple we're working really hard to reboot um, our high school program over the next many years, starting with this year, and uh, Rabbi Greenstein and I have what we think is something really exciting planned. Um, for ninth and 10th grade, I'll be focused uh, on Israel. And um, because there's there's not really, throughout our, our first eight years of religious school, there may be here and there is mm -hmm. Israel, but there's not a Israel focus. And we're, we're hoping that'll culminate in a lot of our students going on Nifty in Israel, the four week um, reform Jewish summer program or some program at the end of their 10th grade, which is the classical year to do it. Um, so we're hoping that this focus and confirmation on Israel will help prepare them and inspire them mm -hmm. to go on that trip. And then Rabbi Greenstein is working with 11th and 12th graders on um, what Jewish life looks like once you um, once you leave the nest, once you go to college, but also once you start your career. So he's bringing in, I think, a dozen speakers next year that work in the arts, that work in uh, for the Grizzlies, that work all different fields mm -hmm. about what their Jewish life looks like. Terrific. Which that was just a brief commercial for well, all and, of you. And it, and, but it also, it reminds me of the wonderful tools that I had because there was so much emphasis on youth and we didn't have COVID. And so between uh, uh, softy conclaves, uh, other softy events, Jacob's camp, uh, softy camp in those days, uh, you had this enormous uh, connection and bonding. Then we did the confirmation trips to New York and eventually the trips to Washington. And part of it was the bonding of the kids. When Jacob's Camp was being created, our temple was responsible for a very large part of the cost because it was proportional. At the board meeting where it was discussed to uh, undertake that cost, um, I said, at that time, Macy Hart was the president of NIFTY. Macy Hart came from Winona, Mississippi, and I said, how else could you create a situation in which a kid from Winona, Mississippi, where he is the only Jewish family in town, 
could become the president of the National or the North American Association of Temple Youth. How could it happen except, in his case, it was Softy and Softy Camp. And that's what this camp is about. It's about these kids, as you said. Yeah, and that's one of the uniquenesses of Temple Israel. Most temples our size are temples in major metropolitan areas, and, and they're not the only temple in the area. Um, and they don't serve numbers of other communities around them as we have for years served in the Jackson, Tennessee, and the Brownsville, and the, the uh, Blytheville, and so on, Clarksdale, when there was a, a death or, please God, something good. Right. So will you, let's talk about camp for a little while mm -hmm. and what that was like to start the camp. And I know that, um, was it Rabbi Saul Kaplan, mm -hmm. um, who is the father of Cantor Kaplan, who's right. a big part of this story too, um, he was played a huge role in the founding. But can you talk about that? Because you were right um, on the, I don't want to use the metaphor, the front lines, but you had a front row seat, um, an active front row seat okay. in what was happening. Yeah, I, uh, the first summer I was here, summer of 1964, I was invited to go on a site search to see where we might put this camp that we're going to have someday. <clears throat> and that's when I found out that when they talk about red clay, they really mean red clay. We went to some site somewhere, and I only remember that uh, it didn't make the cut, but I threw away the clothes I wore because <laughs> they were covered in red mud. Uh, but, but it was a remarkable undertaking because originally the, the, the movement to have a camp was started by the people in the little towns. Mm. Camp Association for Southern Temples was the name cast. And they went as far as they could. They raised money and so forth, but there was a limit to them. And then they went to the big cities, to New Orleans and to Memphis. And Memphis, uh, the head of the, the uh, movement for that became Julian Allenberg, who was mm -hmm. also a former president of Temple Israel. May he rest in peace. Um, it was a miracle. The Union of American Hebrew Congregations did not believe that a camp could, could uh, exist here. They never In Mississippi. In Mississippi. And because we're sparsely populated Jewishly. Other camps needed one out of every 25 Jewish kids in the area. We needed one out of eight uh, simply to populate the camp. And my, my wife, uh, she now runs, Rachel, she now runs Nifty in Israel, the, mm -hmm. the Israel program. Well, I heard the plug for that uh, right. earlier. I, sh I should have disclosed my conflict of interest there. <laughs> but um, she was running or helping to run all of the camps, Jacob's being one of them. And the people in the national office are just astounded by the numbers. Like you're saying, I mean, f for a camp to work in Massachusetts, where the biggest camp is, or there or Texas, Green or Eisner are two biggest camps. Um, they need, yeah, one out of every 50 or something Jewish mm -hmm. kids to go. But Jacobs, not only do we need that, but we have that. Like one out of every, I don't know, five or eight or something like that, Jewish kids in the South, um, in our area, not just Reform, but of all Jews, um, goes to Jacobs. And it just speaks to how important um, the need for the camp was and how it's been embraced by our communities. Jacob's camp, I mean, we now after 50 years, you see the, the results, you see the people who send their children there when they've long since moved out of the region. But even more than that, uh, I don't think anybody's ever done a survey of how many temple presidents, how many rabbis, 
how many Jewish educators, how many uh, people who have dedicated their life in one way or another to Judaism by career uh, or by uh, volunteer support have come out of our area. And it's not an accident. It's because being places like Jacob's Camp, being Jewish became a conscious uh, effort and a conscious uh, pleasure. Uh, kids living it uh, there. And by the way, that's, that's the case for uh, our temple. Uh, I, I've been very aware of how many temple administrators, rabbis, educators, uh, temple presidents have come out of Temple Israel all over the place. It's true. I think the president of one of the temples in Atlanta grew up here. His sister has been president of her congregation in, uh, in Philadelphia or New Jersey. Uh, and that's just one family. Right. I'm, and I'm thinking um, there's a person here who is the president at um, uh, Janet Martyr Synagogue in mm -hmm. um, outside of yeah, San Francisco. Palo Alto. Palo Alto. Um, I mean, of course, speaking of California, Rabbi Denise Egger is oh, from this congregation, right. the um, first founded one of the first LGBTQ right. synagogues in, in America. I don't know if that or CBST was first, if Kolami or she has been, uh, but Trailblazer and also. Absolutely, Denise has been. And she's a president of the CCAR, just like you, which we'll talk yeah. about uh, in a few yes. moments, but you're right. And so many, so many of these people have come out of this place. It's like, uh, why has Mississippi, you think about Mississippi being the cradle for great literature, like Faulkner and great music, rock and blues, rock and roll, but also great Jews. Absolutely, absolutely. At one point, I think on our board of Temple Israel, I think we had three people who had been members of Adath Israel in Cleveland, Mississippi. Hmm. Uh, the generator. Seriously. Must be something in the in the clay. Yeah, I, th I think it's partly because when I lived in Baltimore for a year, I was, uh, it's the largest Jewish community I've ever lived in, and they all uh, were in a very closely packed corner of the city and county. Uh, and if you needed to be Jewish in Baltimore, the easy thing to do was to go to the Green Springs Delicatessen on Sunday morning uh, in Greenville, Mississippi. You might go to Doe's for a steak, but you've got to be consciously Jewish in your religious practice, custom, culture, uh, differently. And and yet there's something about being in the Bible Belt where religion is accepted and promoted in a way that maybe in the North, it's if you want to affiliate or you want to go to temple, it's not it's not as everybody doesn't do it whereas mm -hmm. down here even even though most of our neighbors aren't jewish they all go to church so they kind of get right. it in a certain way yeah in in the south someone may very well say to you have you found a church home uh, nobody says it in boston to my knowledge they just wonder what's going to happen to the celtics <laughs> right which uh game game uh five five is tomorrow is tonight yeah i don't know when this is being uh heard or or as they say, dropped. Uh, so it could be by now the people in Boston may be saying, do you have a church home? Because we got to pray for the Celtics. <laughs> well, we'll I, we won't give away our allegiances uh, tonight. But, um, so let's talk about you're in Baltimore, mm -hmm. and then you get the call from, I'm assuming from Rabbi Wax, mm -hmm. um, that they're interested in you coming back here. 
Was that an easy decision to come back here? Um, I should not say it was easy, but it was easy. Uh, the people in Baltimore were wonderful. It was a fine congregation, still is. It now has merged with uh, two, another of the oldest congregations in, in America, uh, merged because the two of them should have merged, uh, largely because the other one had become smaller. Um, but it was easy because Memphis was so much home and because this congregation and this community fit me. I don't kid myself. I was fortunate to be a rabbi in the right place, in the right time, and not every place and every time would have been right for me. Mm. Uh, Baltimore was good, and it was a great congregation. Helen Wax grew up in that congregation, incidentally, the widow of, or the wife of Rabbi Wax. They called on me, uh, and part of it I know was the feeling that, that the decision had been made to build this building, which has been so wonderful. I still refer to it as the new temple. That decision had been made, and I know that the feeling was now let's nail down the future of that building by having me back. I took it as a great honor and a great tribute, and I know today that that's part of what it was. That's, and I also understood what my job was. And the community had gotten to know you over five years and knew um, what you would bring to Temple. Mm -hmm. So your, your very first Rosh Hashanah sermon, when you get back to the Temple Israel in Memphis. But do we look Jewish? Exactly. But do we look <laughs> Jewish? The trunk in the attic. That's right. So can you talk about, first of all, I mean, it took some chutzpah to give that as your very first sermon. I didn't know it at the time until, <laughs> until a very fine member of the congregation, my generation, apparently was heard to say from some, to someone else walking out, well, he certainly threw down the gauntlet. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't hear about that till later. So tell, yes, tell us, was what, what was that sermon about? And you talked about it earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but just for those of you who haven't read, weren't around for that, or haven't read it, we actually have... Um, a, a number of copies of, of Double High, a collection of writings by Rabbi Harry K. Danziger on the occasion of his retirement. We have a number of these yeah. um, here at Temple. If anybody remain, with, remainders. Well, if anybody would like a copy, uh, yeah. just call call Temple. We're, You're not selling them anymore? Want. Okay. Uh, well, I, maybe there is a, maybe we're not giving them <laughs> no, they, I'm sure they're giving Yeah, but, but do we look Jewish? I, um, I noted that people were still saying in those days, somebody would say, I never deny that I'm Jewish, uh, which as I characterized it then sounded like a disease. Um, but then I, I took the image of the, the trunk that when we came, when Jews came to this country, they brought a trunk full of all kinds of cultural, uh, symbolic, religious practices and so on. But when they went through the trunk, they discovered a lot of them didn't fit American life. And so they stored away the trunk, and what was left was, as I said earlier, God and social justice, worship, things that our Christian neighbors also did. Um, but that now we were ready to go back up like Grandma's attic, open the trunk again, and discover maybe there's some treasures there that now fit. And so it was actually a, pretty much a statement, though I didn't, I don't know that I thought it through that way. It was a statement of, this is what I'm here to do now is to open up that trunk and see what fits. And incidentally, we may put on things from that trunk and use it differently because part of the big thing for Reformed Judaism is not just to adopt, but also to adapt. Hmm. 
and to take things that, that um, well, when we introduced wearing the tallest at Temple, I think you all wear whatever tallest you want to, right? On the BMO, we, and this is, I think, probably due to Rabbi Greenstein's aesthetic, you know, I, we have these beautiful talitos right. yeah. that we all wear, that every clergy wears. Um, oh, but, right, you do. But for a B'nai Mitzvah, you know, of course, yeah, they choose. Yeah. Um, actually, the reason we have matching talitot at Temple Israel is I said to myself, we're introducing the talis, and what we're not going to do is have a bunch of different kinds up there and have people say, oh, it looks just like another orthodox school. Hmm. It's going to be an object of art. Oh, so that was you, not that Rabbi. Was, that was me. I had the same weaver who wove the original Torah covers for the sanctuary. She did the talitot um, because I, I wanted people to look and say, oh, beautiful. Hmm. Or at least not be able to attack it as, uh, that, that's what I mean by adapting. I see. So instead of just one, a, a prayer, a big yeah. prayer shawl that, you know, it became just like everything else in the sanctuary and a temple, a work of art. Exactly. Uh, I knew, I, I will say that I knew what I was doing in that because I knew what, uh, I knew what the, 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 um, the objection would be. Oh, it looks like a shawl. And there's nothing wrong with a shul. Uh, I, I hasten to add, I grew up in a shul, and I have great reference, reference, reverence for the shul. And the temple is also a shul. We just don't call it that. So what kind of changes were you able to make? And do you think that these were changes that um, the congregation was itching for? Um, or, and you you made them, or did you kind of show them that they had a need that they didn't know that they had? A little of both. That's a wonderful way of, of asking it. I really, um, I like to think that most of what I did was for you know, things that for which they were overprepared. They had been around, they had seen enough, they knew how other places did things. And they may not have wanted everything, but they were prepared in the sense that this was not foreign. I used to say that in the middle of the country, in Temple Israel, we didn't do a lot of stuff that nobody has done before. It starts on the coasts and it works its way in. I like to think we did some things, and I like to think that in some cases we did them better, uh, but uh, they weren't gonna be that new. And one of the things that I was able to say to people who said, why are we doing this? Why are we having Hebrew? Why, you know, this, that, and the other. Your kids aren't all gonna grow up and come back to Temple Israel. They're going to go to Denver and Kansas City and Chicago and New York and Atlanta, and they're going to go into synagogues that do things differently, equally Jewish, and they need to feel comfortable. They need to know at least what's, what's going on. They need not to feel like strangers. So part of it was that, and part of it was showing them the hakafah. How did I know that we were ready for marching the tours? And by the way, now it sounds cosmetic. Uh, a lot of things sound cosmetic that were very specific, very substantive. Uh, because when we went to New York with the confirmation class, and we went to Central Synagogue on a Saturday morning where we were always wonderfully welcomed, as we were at Emmanuel, uh, at Central Synagogue, they marched the tourists because that's what they did. But I watched our kids, 
walking over, making their way to the aisle with their, their, their prayer book to touch the Torah. And I thought to myself, they didn't learn that at Temple Israel. They just responded to something that clearly has intrinsic meaning to mm. me. Wow. You, you say that it uh, seems just aesthetic now or just uh, cosmetic, but the notion that the Torah is not just something that sits in the ark. Right. And that then the rabbi, the only person that reads from it is the rabbi, and they, it stays on the bima. But it's that actually something that they can touch, that, yep. that each Jew or each person in the synagogue, get the Torah comes to them every service, mm-hmm. and they touch it with their siddur and kiss it, or later their, their uh, talit or their tzitzit, their, their fringes, um, that it, become, it gives them ownership of yep. the Torah in a way that they didn't have before. That's how I introduced it. It was a December 31st. It was New Year's Eve, some year. Uh, it was New Year's Eve, and on Friday afternoon, I thought to myself, people are going to come Friday night, New Year's Eve. Let's give them something special. And I mapped it out in my mind about going down the two aisles and meeting in the center, and I called Rabbi Greenstein, Kendra Kaplan. I, I think it was Rabbi Greenstein was here already. Uh, and I said, let's do that tonight. And when I introduced it, I did just what you just said. I said, this is an expression of the fact that the Torah belongs to all of us. It's not just on the bima. And in my mind, it was also from theater. Uh, for, I guess, centuries, decades, all plays and dramas were behind the proscenium arch, and they were all on stage. And then things changed. I, mean, I think of Cats, where the cats came into the audience with the on runways, but then you had something like The Lion King, where they were actually near you, and, mm. uh, breaking the proscenium arch and making it all one community. So, did you what did you face resistance to that, or a little? Uh, I remember two two people uh, particularly, um, and one I answered that we're a big tent, and the other. Uh, Someone said, you know, sort of like, what, would, what will our Christian neighbors think? Well, of course. And the person said, look, uh, or I said, uh, people who come to a Jewish service uh, expect a Jewish service. They expect it to be different. We didn't last all these years if we were different. We're different. Uh, so they would expect difference, just as I expect when I go to a Christian service, that they will have some considerable discussion of Jesus. I, was, I didn't give this. Somebody, uh, someone else answered one of the critics and said, do you think I could go to the Episcopal Church and say to them, would you not mention Jesus so much because it's uncomfortable to me? Uh, <laughs> you know, Jewish services are different. That's why in classical reform, one of the things that was very common was you couldn't break the glass at a wedding. Really? My own wedding, Jeannie and I, no glass, no chuppah. That was the rule at Temple Israel. And my family, I'm sure that was the first wedding they'd ever seen like that. Though no one ever said anything about it. But uh, you could look back and you say, well, why was that? Well, there's nothing. It's fairly easy to figure. At some point, classical reform said that looks too different. Hmm. It may be pagan or whatever. So that gets to the fact that the congregation, the Jewish people in America around this time finally felt comfortable enough in their own skin or with their Jew, their Judaism or Jewishness that they were able to be different, that they exactly. were comfortable being. Exactly, exactly. 
And, and you had people also coming who said, why can't we? Uh, I had, a, I had a, a bar mitzvah. We had a bar mitzvah once where the grandmother had knitted kippot for those who were going to be on the bima. So I had to tell her, we don't wear kippot. She said, Rabbi. And we went through the bar mitzvah. They didn't wear kippot. And the next board meeting, I told the story. And I said, now, unless you tell me I have to, I will never say that again. I said, I realized after I did it, it was not at all principled, and it was not religious. It was political. Hmm. And I won't do it again unless you tell me to. Well, of course, the board here was always deferential, and it never said. So, I mean, the rule, I don't even know where the rule came from. I don't know if there was a rule. But uh, that's one of those things is that somebody comes and says, can I do this? And you say to yourself, why can't they? Well, I, you've told me privately, you know, not so far in this podcast, but in the past, one of the ways that you were able to make such big sweeping changes from classical reform where we had an organ every service and everything was in English pretty much um, to one that really closely resembles what we have today, a lot of Hebrew, a lot of music, um, guitar, the folksy style. You, the way that you made these transformative changes was by never making a big change. Right. right. You mentioned guitar and, and music. When Cantor Kaplan came here, uh, we're sitting and talking in my uh, living room, I think, at the time. And I, uh, I said, well, what do you like to do? He said, well, I like to chant this, I like to chant that, I like to chant the other. I said, what do you mean by chant? He said, you know, me, chamocha. I said, oh, you mean sing. We don't use the word chant. But one of the things I was very, the reason I tell the story, one of the things I was very sensitive to was how you say something. And we didn't say we're now going to chant the mi chamocha because, you know, of course, he's a cantor. That cantor's chant. But, um, so that was one thing. I never talked about making a big change. Uh, I never wanted to stress that. Because again, that's also saying maybe to some people we were doing it wrong before. Um, and I was fortunate I didn't have a ritual committee who oversaw things in that sense. And my theory was let them experience it and see if they like it. Don't tell them about it. Um, if you want people to know about pizza, you have a meat pizza, and then if they like it, they can order it again. Mm, and okay. that's how I felt about ritual, because if, I, if we describe, we say we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do the other, uh, everybody has their own picture. Right, right. And you rightly figured, and maybe there are some things that you tried that didn't end up sticking, but you rightly figured that the congregation was ready for these changes. Absolutely. And so once they tasted the pizza, they would like yeah. it. Because a lot of people had come from other places, as I pointed out, and they had other, they had other experiences which they brought and it could enrich us. So let's get back to one of the reasons why they felt comfortable with this. And you said earlier, the very beginning, that the Six-Day War in 1967 mm -hmm. was a turning point, or at least um, whether it was the cause or whether it was had been building for many decades, but this was finally a, a, a turning point moment. Um, you, under your leadership, started to lead the first trips, congregational trips to Israel. 
many people don't know because of course the reform movement now is, is incredibly committed to um, a Jewish state in, in the land of Israel. Um, but at the very beginning of Reform Judaism, we weren't, we, we weren't necessarily vociferously opposed, but we certainly weren't supportive. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until um, a, 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 when the state was established, the reform movement was nominally supportive, but it wasn't until 1967, really, that um, Reform Judaism came to support it, and, and American Jews came to support Israel the way that we did. So what was that like for you, um, helping our congregation change, not only change their view of Israel, but experience it firsthand? And what did that do to the community here once you got back? Well, I think we already, my first trip was 1976. So uh, that was uh, nine years after the, the Six Day War. Um, I think transformation was uh, in Reform Judaism already in the late 1930s. There were stirrings in the, uh, the Reform rabbinate, uh, as evidenced by uh, a, a statement of principles that was adopted in 1937, I think, uh, which felt more warmly toward a, a, some kind of a Jewish state. Uh, there again, it was, there was a fear that it would separate us from other people. There was a fear that we would be accused of dual loyalty. Uh, we weren't quite secure as Americans yet. Uh, and there was reason for that. I mean, there was plenty of anti-Semitism. The height of anti-Semitism was in 1938 or so when Charles Lindbergh gave a speech in which he said, I guess it was, must have had to be 39, uh, Lindbergh gave a speech in which he said that there were three groups trying to draw us into a world war, British, Roosevelt, and Jews. Um, so we were nominally uh, supportive of Israel but Israel was always seen as vulnerable. But in 1967, the Israel that could be destroyed ceased to be the, the message. Uh, and the Israel that could take care of itself and the Jew who was not uh, by nature the victim. That was part of the message then. So by the time we went to Israel in 76, uh, there was great interest in Israel. There was great upsurge of, of that. Uh, 73 had brought it with the Yom Kippur War because there was the fear for Israel then. Uh, but people liked the, it, the, the culture, the symbols, the art, the music was all coming to us. Uh, the change from Ashkenazic to Sephardic. Um, all those things came together as feelings of enrichment, not as burdens. Um, there's a quote from Harry Austin Wolfson, who was a great Jewish scholar at Yale. Uh, and this quote is eerie, that he once said, one should bear being a Jew like as one would live with a handicap. And this is a great Jewish scholar, and yet he casually uh, spoke of being a Jew in America as a handicap. Mm. We, we weren't talking that way by 1967, 70, 73, the Israel trip in 76. So did you have a great deal of interest in these congregational trips to Israel? Was it hard to recruit people? No, we did very, uh, actually our first trip was about 35 people and then we were, we, we filled our bus except for the back seat where we put all the, the carry-ons. Mm. Uh, we generally, you know, filled one bus, that was all we were go- going for, so 45 people or so. Um, 
and we had trips almost every other year for quite a while. And then once once they got back, I, I'm sure as as anybody who's traveled with a group knows, you develop a kind of camaraderie on these, you know, Jewish travel or any kind of travel mm -hmm. that I'm sure helps strengthen the sense of community once you were back here. But also, what was the effect on Hebrew and Hebrew in our services? Did that have an impact? Were people more willing to, or more interested in having Hebrew as part of our services because they had been to Israel, or is that a separate phenomenon? I think it was separate. I, I think it was really separate. It was, it was almost, may have been more the fact that more and more people came who were used to Hebrew. Uh, of course, some of them came from synagogues where the Hebrew was, you know, davened very fast, mm -hmm. and you couldn't read it that way. Um, I, don't, I don't know that there was a connection uh, with Hebrew. Now, they loved it in, when we were in Israel, I would make a special point of showing them, you know, like reading things. Uh, I remember one wonderful uh, moment sitting on a plaza in Tel Aviv, and there was a sign. The Hebrew letters were Shin, Vav, Vav, Pei, Samach. And there was a gentleman who was trying to read it. He said, Shwufus, Shwufus, and it was Schweppes. <laughs> uh, another time, I, w I was looking myself and showing them. It was a, a, a Samach, Vav, Fe, Resh. And I'm thinking, so fair. So fair is a writer. So fair is a scribe. So fair is somebody who, uh, who uh, creates Torahs. And then I realized that the word was supermarket. <laughs> and that was the so fair. So, the so, English words are always harder than the Hebrew exactly. words. Exactly. And, and, but people would like, they, they liked little insights into the Hebrew. Uh, some, I, I showed somebody once that his name was on the, the fence with uh, it was the last name of something uh, on there, and that I said, that's your name in Hebrew. Hmm. Um, so it was more of a, a fun thing. Or the, the names of streets, I would point out. They were going down a street called uh, such and such, and that was a very famous author hmm. uh, or a po political figure or something like that. My, my favorite street, you're right, being in any Israeli city, just looking at the streets is a wonderful way of learning exactly. the history of Zionism, of the Jewish people. Uh, but my favorite street in Jerusalem uh, is Lincoln Street. So uh, I guess whoever was making the street sign early on um, didn't realize that the L, the second L in Lincoln, uh, President Abraham Lincoln is silent. So they, they spell it out with an extra Lamed there. And uh, Lincoln Street is pronounced Lincoln Street. So. It's right near HUC in Jerusalem. Well, just to show that, that not only Jews make those mistakes, uh, Temple Israel is on East Massey Road, but the back of the temple is on Lancaster. And if you look at the cross street between Lancaster and Massey and uh, Cottingham, it'll say Westminster. And we know that it's really Westminster, but somebody <laughs> threw in an extra I, I'm oh. sure, because they got paid extra by the letter. That's funny. That's funny. Well, let's let's um, finish up by talking about this place, about Temple Israel, and um, you know we we've already been going for so long, and I have so many questions I'd love to ask you about. But I want to end with this. So, um, in a very what is now a very well known sermon of yours, um, I think it was your twentieth High Holidays here, you gave a sermon called God's Unfinished Business. 
And um, you have many writings that um, continue to make an impact on Temple to this day. One of them that we read every Shabbat is your uh, prayer for the sick. And in the prayer for the sick, you, you have the words, and, and many people uh, could probably say this without even looking at it on the inside back cover of our prayer book, which we always say, you know, turn to the inside back cover. Mm -hmm. But um, you, you actually convey, I think, a lot of your theology in both of these sermons, um, what, what you believe God to be in this writing and the sermon. You, you ask that, um, we ask God to strengthen in them the healing powers you have placed within us all. To, to God, we, we don't ask God in this prayer to heal them, but to strengthen in them the healing powers you've already placed within us, um, to guide the hands and hearts of those who are entrusted with their care. So then in um, your sermon, you talk about God's unfinished business. And the, the crux of the sermon, uh, I'll leave to you, but one of the um, messages inherent in just even, even if you never heard the sermon, but you hear the title, God's Unfinished Business, it, it implies that God needs a partner. God needs us to help finish God's business. That um, we, God isn't necessarily gonna remove my tumor, uh, but, the surgeon and the nurses and, and the people cleaning my hospital room, um, it's through them that God can do God's work. So can you talk a little bit about your theology mm -hmm. and um, how that impacted how you serve the congregation? And then we'll talk, we'll close with this notion of God's unfinished business and um, the legacy that that left. Yeah, the, um, my, my theology has been remarkably consistent over the years. Um, which is, it's called the limited God theory, but that's, that's academic. Uh, it stems a lot of, one of the great enunciators of it was Milton Steinberg, uh, a very famous conservative reconstructionist rabbi, died young, uh, poet of, uh, anyway. Uh, the notion is that, that we look around and what we see is inexplicable evil that that we might say, well, you know, some bad things happen because of uh, free will, uh, but you, are you really going to tell the the, the uh, parents of Uvalde that after all, this guy, you know, your children died because this guy has free will. God gave him. Uh, uh, hurricanes are not a matter of free will, uh, and so the question comes up: if if God is all good and God is all powerful, then necessarily God makes a perfect world but the world isn't perfect. And we can't explain some of the evil. And so one of the ways we can figure is God isn't all good, but that's horrible. You don't want that. So you have to say, well, God must be all good, but not all powerful. There are things God can't do, not just doesn't do, but can't do, which is for some people heretical. But that's my theology, that I want God to do everything God can for me and therefore, I have a prayer that I say every time I get on a plane. I've been doing it for since I gave up, since I started flying again after two and a half years of not flying when I was in school. Uh, I ask God to to keep my plane for me, for the people on it, etc. At all planes. And someone said to me, "You're committing intellectual suicide because you don't believe God can do it." I said, "So I committed intellectual suicide. So what?" <laughs> uh, 
Um, so that's my theology is that we encounter evil as God's unfinished business and God needs us as partners to make it happen. And yes, the prayer for the sick was very much composed not to say to somebody whose loved one is dying in the hospital of a terminal illness, uh, well, God, you know, God decides these things. Uh, I wrote that prayer when two women in the congregation were both dying of cancer. Their families were here every Shabbos. And I thought to myself, we don't have a prayer for the sick. We, we didn't say any prayer. We didn't say a mishaberach or anything. It just wasn't part of the ritual. And this became. And you're right about people knowing it. We were on a confirmation trip in New York once. We were in the uh, Eldridge Street Synagogue uh, when it was being redone. And we had a little service there. And one of the kids said to us, said to me, can we say the prayer for the sick? And I said, yeah, but we don't have a copy. He said, we know it. So, um, when I was in Israel, my very first time in BBYO, I was with uh, a number of people from Memphis, and um, we didn't have any Sidarim, or we didn't have a prayer for the sick. And um, Jennifer Poland, I remember distinctly, Jennifer was like, Jeff, we know the prayer, we know our temple's prayer for the sick, which of course was yours. And so here we were in the basement of some, uh, you know, probably two-star hotel in, in uh, Israel somewhere, and uh, we said your prayer for the sick. Mm. So, but I want to get back um, to this notion of theology because even though God, um, in your mind, might not be powerful to stop um, all bad things from happening, that doesn't mean that God is indifferent. That doesn't mean that mm -hmm. God doesn't care. And you have this beautiful sermon um, in this in this collection called uh, "Perhaps God Cries." Mm -hmm. um, per perhaps He Cries. And um, it beautifully expresses that even if God can't stop everything, and nor might we not want a world in which we don't have free will, well, we don't have to take it there, but, but um, even if God doesn't stop everything bad from happening, God cries with us, God is bereaved with us. That, uh, that comes from, um, yes, it, it, you said you know, God not being indifferent. Uh, there are there are theologies in which God is a force, is a power, is a uh, reconstructionist Judaism. Uh, Mordecai Kaplan said God is the power that makes for salvation, that makes us human. Um, a long time ago, I said to myself, uh, I don't think I can have a God who has less capacity for feeling than my five-year-old son. Uh, and out of that came, uh, where's, God at, at, where's God at Uvalde? Crying. Uh, Wiesel, Wiesel has a different take on it in Night, where a child is hanging, and someone says, where is, uh, is hanging from a gallows? And someone says, where is God? And someone else says, they are hanging on the gallows. I don't believe that. I believe God is uh, mourning with the mourners, frustrated with, if God isn't frustrated with a world where Uvalde can happen, um, there's something wrong. Um, the symbol I usually use is if, if God could keep there from being the need for a St. Jude's Hospital and God doesn't do it, I don't care what reason he gives, it's not enough. So I have to believe God can't, God can't uh, eliminate the need for St. Jude's, but perhaps God can 
strengthen those who make St. Jude's what it is. Mm-hmm. So let's let's end with that because right before we recorded this, um, you told me that this sermon and and the um, legacy from it is actually the part of your legacy that you're most proud of. Mm-hmm. So in this sermon, God's unfinished business. Um, what what was it? What was the idea behind it? And um, how did we? How did Temple and our members become God's partner? Uh, what was behind this was this was exactly the period of time when Harold Kushner's book, "When Bad Things Happen to Good People," was popular. Uh, Harold Kushner spoke here pre- prior to Rosh Hashanah that year. He was here for another convention. We were able to have him speak at a Friday night. And so the this question of bad things happening to good people was very much in the public uh, public mind. Um, and so I decided to address it. Uh, and one of the things that had influenced me was hearing Rabbi Harold Schulweiss from the West Coast talk about his chavurot in his congregation because he said, uh, who, drives, who drives one of your members to their chemotherapy appointment? Who brings food when they come back from the hospital? And I said to myself, you know, we rabbis and cantor do the best we can, but frankly, we visit, it's in the sermon. We come, we visit, we do the ceremony, we leave, we go somewhere else. There's nothing left. And so I issued a call for people to become partners with God in God's unfinished business. And I think like 200 people responded by Yom Kippur. And one woman, um, Deanna Kaminsky, was having terrible back trouble. And she said to me, can I, uh, can I, uh, coordinate this. I need something to take me out of myself. I hope Deanna wouldn't mind my saying it. And she brilliantly coordinated it, uh, led it, gave of herself in so many ways. Jordan Parr, Rabbi Jordan Parr, was an intern here at the time, an HEC student. He asked if he could be the staff liaison, and he did. So when I did it, I didn't have a plan for how to carry it out, but these people were the first God's partners, God's unfinished business. They divided it into driving, cooking, visiting, calling, uh, and it developed a life of its own. And I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm a believer that uh, it isn't always what the rabbi does, it's what the congregation does. Uh, what the congregation does tells me if I did okay. I want to read a couple lines from the sermon. Um, You say, you talk about um, that you know that there's many people in need, that, and all, one one thing that would brighten their day, that would fill this need is just a call, just five minutes, um, just a quick visit. But as a rabbi, a cantor, when somebody is in the hospital, um, or somebody passes away, there or their family's need shoots up to the top. And even though you know and you wish that you had the time to call and, and to, to really help these people, um, unfortunately, they become not at the top of the list. And so you say, um, and I'm quoting here, but in, but in this sanctuary, there are people who have an hour or two and a driver's license and a car. They can do God's unfinished business by bringing real life where there is only existence. There are people who, uh, in the sanctuary, 
who with the power of their index finger and the capacity to dial seven digits, this was obviously before the iPhone, um, can bring 10 minutes or 20 or a half hour of real life and caring into a place which is simply a place of survival. When you do that, you do God's unfinished business. Um, and then just a little bit lower, I love this line, for the price of a simple casserole, you can do God's unfinished business, making existence into life. Um, and so you have these cards mm -hmm. in the back of everybody's, um, where the prayer book rests, mm -hmm. and um, you ask them to fill it out. And uh, you said, if we can get just 36 sadikim, 36 righteous people, um, or maybe even 72, we'll begin to, to do God's work. But how many people filled out those cards? I think there was a couple of hundred. Wow. Yeah, it was, it, it was remarkable. But of course, again, the will had to be there. I just, you know, touched it. I know that my, my grandpa, Sumner Levine, he spent many years visiting people in the hospital mm -hmm. as part of this program. And I know it was one of the proudest um, things that he did in his life. And, and you, you end the sermon with, um, with this. You say, um, you say, I walked through the, t through the building and it reminded me that when out-of-towners come to Temple Israel, they say, quote, I can't get over your building. It's the most beautiful temple I've ever seen. And you say, and I believe it is. If you sign those cards and you take up the opportunity to do God's unfinished business, then to those out-of-towners who say, I can't get over your building, it's the most gorgeous temple in the world, we will say, if you think our home is beautiful, you ought to see the people who live here. Yeah. Um, so I would just want to thank you. Oh, thank you. Rabbi D for um, inspiring generations of people to, to love this place, to, to build it into the home that it is, and to do God's unfinished business to um, create holiness um, by helping other people and bring God into the world. So thank you for this conversation. Oh, thank you. For the tremendous legacy that you've left. And, um, and so. thank you for being our rabbi, once our student, uh, once our uh, charge child, and now our rabbi. Thank you. Um, if you, if uh, I want to encourage everybody to come by and pick up one of these books from Temple, um, call Jan Klein uh, or the main number and be inspired by Rabbi D's words uh, in addition to his legacy, uh, just as I was. Thanks. We'll join you. Uh, join us next time on Torah to the People. Take care. Mm -hmm.